0: welcome to the podcast israel and christians today this podcast is brought to you by christians for israel
1: international join us on the journey as we explore and discover god's love for and his promises to the jewish people our goal is to understand israel and world events from a biblical perspective enjoy this new podcast episode Well, hello everybody. Good morning, good evening, wherever you might be. Welcome to another episode of Israel and Christians Today. My name is Andrew Tucker, talking with Johannes Gerloff. Welcome, Johannes.
0: Welcome and Shalom from Jerusalem.
1: Lovely to see you. And uh, we're picking up on our conversation, Johannes, uh, about international law. And in fact, we've reversed the roles, and you're asking me the questions. Uh, I have my hat on as an international lawyer. And I think just to explain to people um, that, you know, what I'm trying to do here uh, is is to explain a phenomenon. I think there's a very interesting and important and fascinating phenomenon happening about international law, the way we think about law, the way it's being applied. Uh, This is... A large part of my work, I'm I'm a Christian working in this environment, but I want to understand how international law works and why it is that there is an obsession with international law in relation to the Israel-Palestine conflict in a way that we don't see in other conflicts. Uh, the law is being interpreted and applied in a different way to this conflict than it is in relation to other conflicts. So somehow, in my view at any rate, this says something about the way we as nations look upon Zionism and the Jewish people, and it says something very much about our identity, I think, Uh, And that's why I think it's important, even as Christians, that we understand this. So just to be clear to our listeners, uh, you know, this conversation at this point is uh, we're trying to be descriptive. We're trying to get a hold of the facts. Part of those facts are the facts of the way the legal system works. So I'm not defending the European approach international law in this respect, but I am trying to understand it and explain it because I think only when we are able to do that can we then put it into a biblical context. So I just say that by way of introduction,
0: uh, Johannes. But Yes, I had some more questions to you. Um, I want to refer back to the... Um, to the video you did with Sarah van Oort, you mentioned that an important uh, element of international law is the, uh, the element of proportionality, how a military responds in a proportional way. Now I want to just throw in that and ask you about that because the difficulty from, from my point of view, as I live among Israelis as a German and uh, as I was moving back and forth as a journalist, I actually dedicated 11 years of my life really to understand the Palestinian situation. I was a lot in Gaza. I, I had my questions about this question of, or this demand to be, to answer proportional. Because you can do that if you see France and Germany, two states facing each other, or even Germany and Holland. It, two sovereign states in a way, I mean, they're not sovereign that that much anymore today, but two states facing each other, it makes sense that it should not be unproportional. But if you, as a husband, get a phone call from your wife, and your wife says, There's a man in front of my door, he is weaponed with, or he has an axe, and he wants to do all kinds of things to me, and you have the only possibility to call the police. You will not call the police and say, listen, it's just one man. He's just an ex. Please don't bring your guns. Just be proportional. No, what you're asking the police is to come with overwhelming force to protect your wife. And you know, the same reasoning is from Israel's side towards the Gaza Strip, if I take it. As an example, we don't have a state on the other side. The government in Ramallah, which we as Europeans try to uphold, has no power whatsoever in Gaza. And who shoots the rockets might not even be Hamas, who has the power officially, but it might be Islamic Jihad. And if, if it wasn't Islamic Jihad, then it's the Salafites who come in from Sinai, even more extremist groups who are Al-Qaeda and whatever, how would they call themselves. So I sometimes think asking from a secure and orderly Europe for proportionality in such a situation where you have crazies running around with rockets that reach 100 kilometers. It's irresponsible. It's, it's I don't know what it is. But as an Israeli, I ask for another protection from my government that is disproportional. So what does international law, maybe you can describe a little bit about what proportionality means and why they apply it here and why they demand it from Israelis in such a case.
1: Look, it's a, it's a, it is an issue. I, I fully agree with you. And I see a, a disproportionality in the way that Israel is being expected to do things and not do things. Um, the, the concept of proportionality comes up. It's part of the law of armed conflicts. Uh, It's the law about the use of force within within a conflict, Uh, an international armed conflict. This is regarded as an international armed conflict, even though it's not between two states, but it's between Israel and external actors, or whatever they might be. Uh, So therefore, it said Israel is subject to this law. Um, Israel is the, the dominant force in this, it's at least that's the perception. Israel has a strong army. It has a strong air force. Therefore, it is the one who is most likely to use disproportionate uh, amount of, uh, of force in dealing with situations. So it's subjected to uh, extraordinary scrutiny as compared with um, the, the terrorists on the other side of the fence, basically. I mean, this is a problem in international law, generally, is how do we deal with, um, uh, with really conflicts that are not
0: proportionate by nature? We, it, we, talk about, we talk about an asymmetric conflict here. It's an asymmetric conflict. And actually, exactly. we have to be clear that today, governments and military people from all over the world come and seek Israel's advice how to deal in asymmetric conflict where you don't have a government on the other side, but where you have, you have militias like with Hezbollah that have military capability. Also in, the, in, uh, in, uh, in information services and in international collections, connections, they have military capability, but they do not identify as a state and are not submit to international law. So that's what we call an asymmetric conflict, and uh, thank you very much, Andrew. You want to? Uh, did I interrupt you? You wanted to to to, to add no, something? Oh, have another I, I question. I would just
1: say we, we this is a big topic we could g- go into, but I, I think clearly, that, you know, the law in this way, the 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 requirements that are imposed on Israel, um, in my view, are disproportionate themselves because they they really you know, international lawyers are very quick to jump up and condemn Israel when more Gazans are killed when Israel invades in response to the terrorist threats and the bombs, the rockets that are being fired daily from Gaza into Israel. As soon as civilians are killed on the Gaza side, then the international community stands up and condemns Israel. And in my view, that's, uh, it's an first of all, I think it's an improper use of the freedom that these international lawyers have because they make a decision without, you cannot judge any casualty without looking at all of the circumstances. And one thing that Israel does do is for every casualty that takes place, they do have both before and afterwards strict scrutiny by their own international legal experts to make sure that everything it is done is done according to international law. And if it's not, then they pay the consequences. Yes.
0: Um,
1: and there is no other army in the world, which is, uh, is so, um, it takes such extreme lengths to make sure that it is complying with international law as the IDF does. Um, and, and yes. That's I, I just
0: wanted to, to emphasize that uh, what you were just saying. I heard and. I think it was an American colonel uh, uh, talking about, he said, if we would take the legal scrutiny on our commanders as Israel does, we could not afford it. Exactly. So that's a a clear answer. I wanted to get in another thing you mentioned uh, also when talking about international law, and I want to encourage our listeners to listen back to the earlier podcasts, um, starting with your television interview with with Sarah van Oort on international law, and then we had another two in our conversation. And I want to pick out one idea, and that's the nation-state idea that is basic to international law. Um, And I see there also some uh, discrepancies with reality, if I look what international lawyers said, and I wanted to give you a stand to, to, to comment on that, to make me better understand what international lawyers think. Look, in Europe, I think, at least emotionally, we have understood that the whole idea of nation state um, provided a lot of bloodshed for us. And we are de facto moving back to a multinational state. If we look at the European Union, we. Um, you talked in, in when you explained international law that that the basis is or the basic understanding is of an independent state. Today we talk more and more about a global village. We know that no not one state is really independent, can behave as if there were no other states. And you even, if I remember correctly, talked once about a, a world government we are moving towards. It and now we're getting into spiritual things and, and, uh, uh, and certainly theological questions, I, want, I would like to avoid them. I want to ask you as a, a legal expert, don't international legal experts see that? And we have to see also, let me add there one point just for our attention. Uh, Israeli legal experts who emphasize that Israel has no right to govern Palestinians call themselves Zionists and emphasize that Israel has to be a Jewish state for the Jewish people. And they very much foster there an age old European idea of a nation state that has to be clean of other nations. I'm sorry if I say that. But there I'm putting myself on the line of being critical towards Israeli, maybe the Israeli majority, is afraid of the Palestinians. I personally think in the end, like we do in Europe, we have to find a way to to, to live together. And why Europeans are not coming into this process and saying, listen, we haven't found the ideal way. We are experimenting. But in the end, you have to survive in a Muslim majority around you. Yes, let's talk about how you can survive as Jewish people, self-governed, autonomous, but but maybe the nation state idea is something we have to question. Are there question marks behind that? Or would you still say this is the basis, an independent nation state of international law? Or is there something we can talk about? OK, so big topic.
1: Um, basically, what's happening in international law, really, since mainly since the Second World War, um, is that the individual has become the center of the legal system and not the nation state. This is, this is the gradual process that's happening. So it's, it's the law of human rights, which really only developed after the Second World War, it didn't exist before then as a body of law. And the thinking was, and again, it's a very Jewish idea Hirsch Lauterpacht, Cambridge University, uh, was was central in the Nuremberg trials and was one of many leading intellectuals who developed the idea, which was reflected in the International Declaration on uh, on Human Rights, uh, the rights of of man, um, that it's no longer about states, it's about people. People matter. People are made in the image of God. People must be protected. Uh, People have rights to develop, to advance, to
0: flourish. And the nation-state is... Justly, to be properly understood, if you say people have, you mean individual human beings. You don't mean a a nation. I'm sorry, I'm... No, thank you. No, that's important.
1: So in the first instance, it's individuals. You and I, as an individual, are the center of creation, according to this worldview. And it's, it's your well-being that counts. It's my well-being that counts. And nation-states are there to serve the individual. So we've seen a gradual breaking down and questioning of this whole idea of sovereignty and, and statehood. Uh, and there's a tension there. That, that conversation is still happening. It hasn't been resolved one way or the other. And I think you see, um, you know, within international law, there are different lines of view. And one of the um, fault lines, as it were, is, you know, between those who see this, the nation state as being the core centre of international law, as opposed to those who see the individual and uh, in person. Now, as a result of that movement, you have the notion of the right of peoples, so, so groups of individuals, to self-determination, which has become a core part of international law now that, that never was the case before the 1960s. And I think this explains the obsession with the Palestinian people um, is a sense that the Palestinian people are the last is the last colonialist enterprise that needs to be dismantled is the colonialization of the Palestinians okay all of Africa has been decolonized, and Asia and other parts of the world that formerly were colonies of Europe. Um, have all been resolved, they've obtained their independence, there's only one people that haven't, that's the Palestinians. And I think this goes back to the Balfour Declaration and the mandate that we in Europe, we we don't like that system anymore. Israel was created out of a, a sense that it was Europe that was creating this new reality in the Middle East, which resulted in states. And we forgot about the Palestinians. We didn't resolve their problem. So I think at the heart of this obsession with creating a Palestinian state is an idea that we made a mistake in creating this Jewish state because it has resulted in the oppression of the true indigenous people um, Andrew, I'm just I, explaining the mindset, I'm not defending it, but I think this is
0: the... I, I just wanted to interrupt you because I think the whole Palestinian question and the Palestinian national state and the whole question that is uh, uh, behind that, we should have as an extra podcast, um, and, and, and I really would like to hear what you, what you have to say to that and also how you compare that. Um, But I I would like to postpone that as it's a deeper issue, and it's an issue that will not leave us. And we we have to also ask about what is a nation. I mean, the, the, the whole question there is also a biblically related question because it is God who divided mankind into nations and we should not disregard that. So the existence of nation or national identities is something very important we have to honor. I talked here about something else, the idea of an independent nation state. And if I see that God divided nations, he made them interdependent. He made them work together. He made them work towards a goal. Also, the relationship between Israel and the nation. But I'm not talking about like a theologian again. But as I said, we want to postpone that. I have a last question in this, and, and, and that might be also something something broader. You will tell me we'll, we'll need another hour to talk. Um, I once talked to a, a German diplomat who had a, a legal background, international legal background. And I kind of was, was, was bothered by um, discrepancies in his theories. For example, and, and I told it to, uh, I talked to him about that. I said, you're in, in, inconsistent if you take the border between Israel and the occupied territories To be the border of uh, the the ceasefire line of 1949, but if we come down to Jerusalem, which is the center of all, you suddenly think definitive is the UN General Assembly Resolution 181 of of November 1947. Why doesn't this go together? And he looked at me a little bit puzzled, and then he said, "Oh, uh, anything else we cannot uh, will not be accepted on the international stage." So I said, okay, you're now not talking about accepting a, a, a international law. You're talking about being accepted. What is it being accepted? Is, uh, does it mean that international law is the right of the, the stronger one? You, Andrew, mentioned in your conversation with Sarah that uh, international law is looking how states behave. And I would have at once contradicted you there and say, wait a minute. Hitler and Stalin behaved. They were both states, and they divided Poland. Or if we look into, okay, you said before 1945 and after 1945. I go into after 1945, we have 56 Muslim states in the United Nations and one Jewish state. It is 56. I know that it changed with all kind of treaties, Okay. But uh, let's take it as an example. We have 56 wolves uh, um, uh, voting with one lamb who provides the next uh, meal. The the lamb will have no chance, even though there are, I don't know how many European doves sitting on the fence and say, now we are not uh, interacting or we are not mingling into this process. As long as the wolves don't, they take the doves. So is international law the right of the stronger? Is it? I mean, if we talk about democracy, we're not talking about any more individual beings, as you said. We're talking about states, and we know that none of these Muslim states is a democracy. In some of these states, not even women have the right to vote. It's the men who decide. So what is the basis? How, what, what is the higher authority? Oh, I have to bring in one more thing. You mentioned about the abolition of slavery. That is one. Now, if if we have to remember here, there is a higher authority behind that because people like William Wilberforce were strongly influenced, if not saw themselves as believing Christians, obliged to the word of God and therefore fought slavery. So what is the higher authority behind international law? What do we have to submit if we talk about that? Uh, good, they're all very good
1: questions, Johannes. And uh, I would need- I'm sorry for inviting to, you. To answer them, but it might help. Um, look, th- the answer is there is no answer to your question. This is the eternal debate within academic law circles. Is there a higher authority or not? Look, there there are international lawyers. There are many who say the international legal system is not a legal system at all. There is no higher authority. There is no um, balance of powers. There is no rule of law. Because at the end of the day, it's all about the politics of what states decide in the General Assembly or the Security Council. They might talk about law. They might use legal language. But it's not really law in any meaningful sense. That's, that's definitely one perspective. Then there's the debate within international law, those who regard it as being a valid legal system. I would say between the naturalist, the natural lawyers, and the positivist lawyers. And this is a debate going on in any legal system. You know, what, what is law about? Is it about, um, do we derive our principles and our authorities from uh, from somewhere else, external to the legal system? Or is it simply about rules that are developed and we have to comply with those rules, whatever their source of authority? So it's it's an ongoing discussion within the the, the, the legal philosophical community about the source of authority. Now, what I can say is that I would say the, I mean, this explains, I think, the the, the chasm between a European approach to international law and let's say the the American approach, certainly under Republicans and certainly under President Trump who are realists. Um, And you recall that Secretary of State Pompeo, you know, said fairly recently, well, We can have an endless legal argument about the status of these territories, but it's not law at the end of the day that decides. It's about realities on the ground. That's one approach. It's a valid approach. I think it's not accepted by the majority. Certainly the majority in Europe, and I would say universally, takes the view that um, law is meaningful, Law is important. Uh, The legal system um, has its own inherent validity and authority. Uh, Where it comes from is is a matter of debate. Um, But that we should be striving for the better good. International law should be an expression of some greater universalist uh, values. If I could just. Sorry, you you want to
0: ask. Yes, I wanted to interrupt you because our time is over. Ah, it's Andrew, funny. I'm sorry for that. Um, but if from an Israeli point of view, then I might be right to say if Israel can't defend itself, international law will not defend it and not certainly not protect it, because there is no executive uh, power that enforces international law except the wolves who before decided that the lamb will be eaten. So uh, if the Lamb can't defend itself, we are back to the law of the stronger. I'm sorry, I I, I tried to to, to bring it down to earth. And I want to give you the final word and close the whole thing. Um, Do you see a clash coming up here? And maybe one sentence also, I as a Christian who wants to submit to authority that is ordained by God, To what should I submit? I mean, this is an absolute, sorry if I say it, international law is a lawless mix-up of opinions. And and finally, the one who is stronger, who gets more people behind himself, is right? Even if that kills a whole nation? I mean, it, it, it leaves to me a lot of question marks. It's everything but being so clear as media and politicians and diplomats try to mirror that to me as a journalist, and therefore I have to write about it or report about it, I want to understand.
1: OK, uh, this would be a topic of, a, of another session. Let, let me just close. Uh, I have a book here written by one of the leading lights of modern international law. His name is Maki Koska He is a Finnish professor of international law. Um, and he writes books about international law. If I just quote, he's, basically what he says is, international law is a discourse. It's a conversation that oscillates interminably, necessarily between two poles of argumentation, the abstract utopianism of the idealists and the power apologism of the realists. So he says, this is the dichotomy that the endless discussion with international law, is it about achieving an ideal or is it about the reality on the ground? He says, we will never answer that question. We will always have this debate and discussion because nobody can decide and there are views both ways. So at the end of the day, he says, international law is politics. His book is called The Politics of International Law. And he says, at the end of the day, law is about who makes decisions on the ground. And every decision is about weighing pros and cons. And it's always taken from a particular perspective. So at the end of the day, I would concur and say that it comes down to the will of the majority, those who have the say. Um, This is problematic, I think, in many ways. And it questions the authority of international law. to answer your question, um, I would say as as a Christian looking at it from a biblical perspective that this is the really the question we have to ask ourselves in any context is do are we relying on the mechanisms the 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 ideas and the institutions of man, or are we actually looking for the government of God now, th- this might sound a bit Scary, in a sense, but I think the paradigm the the mindset that the Bible gives us is that um, and this is the message of Babel and the Tower of babel what was so what was so problematic about the tower of babel there 's nothing wrong with a tower there 's nothing wrong about nations cooperating together, but what was wrong is they were trying to reach into heaven and create their own kingdom. And I think this at the end of the day is is the problem, the challenge of international law is, are we creating our own kingdom on earth or do we accept that God may have another way? And this is the big question that I think the Jewish people thrust under our nose because that is, the, that is the very question that the existence of the Jewish people poses to us. Uh, and, and I think the reason why it's, there's so much discussion about it, because they ask the question, is there a God? And is it God who decides, or is it man? Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. We'd like to connect with you online. Find us on Facebook, visit our YouTube page and check out our website. For now, thank you for listening and we'd like to see you next time. Bye bye!